This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. We appreciate being a part of your day. We're going to cover a lot of ground on today's show. In the second segment of the show, we're going to be talking to Troy Breedenkamp, Senior Vice President of Public Affairs at the Renewable Fuels Association. EPA is currently looking to seat a bunch of peer reviewers. And the question is, who are they going to be and what are going to be their preconditions about biofuels when they come into this role? Troy will give us an update on that. And in segment three, Bill Biederman of agmarket.net will be joining us. After yesterday's market action, I figured it was time we check in with somebody who could give us a little insight about what's changed here as the calendar flips to June. First, however, we are going to be talking with Courtney Nupp. She's the vice president of international market development at the National Pork Board. Courtney, thanks for joining us today. Yes, good morning. Thanks for having me. Wanted to have you on today. Yesterday, we spoke with Dan Halstrom of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. He was talking about the exciting opportunities for U.S. meat as we look at the South Asian, Indo-Pacific region, and he mentioned specifically the Philippines, Courtney. And so I wanted to pick your brain a little bit on what the forecast for U.S. pork looks like over there. Before we do that, though, give us a little update. In your role at the National Pork Board, what is it you try to do as you identify emerging markets for U.S. meat? Uh, Yes, at the National Pork Board, we're heavily focused on the international marketing component because of the production, which is 30%, gets exported from the United States. And that's a huge value add to the carcass and to our producers. And so as we're looking at expanding markets, we're keeping our eye on consumption of pork, where we can increase that, and keeping an eye on where we can differentiate U.S. pork versus pork of other origins, especially the, the European Union and Canada. That is a really good point, that differentiation, the value that American pork brings to the table. Courtney, let's start the discussion there. As you look at Southeast Asia, that Indo-Pacific region, how does U.S. pork differentiate itself from our our competitors' pork? Yeah, we look at differentiating factors such as food safety. We have great food safety parameters, and you have to remember in developing markets, we can't take that for granted because their domestic production might have challenges such as access to outdoor production for China, things that we have eliminated with our good production practices. We also focus on quality and providing a consistent product and uh, being able to deliver consistently as well, which of course with supply chain issues has been an ongoing challenge, but we're really focused on building those relationships at the local level. And uh, that's been very successful for us in increasing our brand and our presence. So Dan was very excited about Southeast Asia yesterday when we spoke to on the phone. Courtney, from your position, does that area have that same level of excitement for you? Do you see a lot of opportunity for U.S. pork moving into that uh, region of the world? No question. The Asia-Pacific region is extremely important for U.S. pork, uh, current exports, but huge potential for increasing. Not only do we depend on large volume and high-value markets like Japan, South Korea and China, but we also see tremendous growth and opportunity in Southeast Asia as a whole. Um, You know, specific to the Philippines, which you mentioned, we saw huge increases in 2021 versus previous years because the government relaxed their tariffs. Their domestic industry has been hit by African swine fever. They need more pork that's imported. And we saw an increase of 26% year on year um, in pork export value uh, to the Philippines. It was hugely successful for us. And we look to build on that as their government continued to extend those tariff reductions recently. As those openings become available to U.S. pork, those reductions, those trade barriers be wiped out or shrunk. Courtney, what is the, I guess, the first step of the U.S. pork industry as you try to grow those numbers? Do you get in there and meet with retailers? Do you work directly with consumers? What does that approach look like? Yes, we have our strategic partnership with the U.S. Meat Export Federation, which gives us boots on the ground. They've had a big focus on a market like the Philippines. 
Recently, they've implemented a three-phase effort to better understand consumer perceptions about imported pork among consumers in the Philippines because there's a perception that imported pork may not be as fresh as domestic pork. The program aims to increase sales of our product through direct consumer outreach, and uh, we're also really latching onto a trend where Korean barbecue, which of course is very pork-focused, is a big trend that actually emerged throughout the pandemic. Their team is working closely with retailers and food service, and that's been key for us because as we move from just importers and further processors, penetrating food service and retail is where we really can grow value and establish a concrete brand for U.S. pork versus other pork. And that's what we're seeing in the region, but USMEF is doing a great job in that country. That is good to hear, and it makes a lot of sense. Courtney, if I'm at a restaurant and I see branded U.S. pork on the menu and I eat it and I have a good experience, I'm going to be a lot more likely to look for that branding when I go back to the grocery store. Is U.S. pork branded when it gets into these countries? It is. We have a U.S. pork brand, and it's the outline of a pig, and the inside is an American flag. It's a great brand, very well recognized, and it comes with that high-quality uh, attribution that we love. And so that is something that consumers do seek out and see as a high-quality product. So that's really important, very well known, and uh, we're very proud of that brand. So, Courtney, Philippines' big growth this past year. Look for a continued growth as this next year takes place. What other countries in that region are you excited about? Well, the uh, the region has, like I mentioned, some that are consistent customers and some with huge potential. Of course, uh, we have the Japan, Korea, China, but we look at big increases in opportunities, not just for a growing consumer base that's coming out of the pandemic, finally, but also they have seen huge impact from African swine fever, um, and that's decimated domestic production, which means they need to import pork because pork is so key to their diet. We are focused on Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, uh, Malaysia, and of course our consistent Korea, Japan uh, markets as well, because those are key, especially for the loin and shoulder cuts. And so we see a huge opportunity across all of those countries. It's just a huge population base. And we're really excited about the potential for greater access and uh, to best position ourselves. Absolutely. And you touched on some of those stalwart buyers, South Korea being one of those that has certainly been in the U.S. market. As, as you look out, Courtney, are there any uh, bumps you're concerned about in the Korean market or do things look pretty good going forward? Things have looked really well. Um, in regards to the Korean market, one thing we saw throughout the pandemic was their uh, embracing of e-commerce. And that's a big trend that we see that will be replicated in other markets. But we were able to best position U.S. pork to be offered through these online platforms. And so we see that continuing even post-pandemic. Uh, Korea is just a great trading partner for us. So we'll continue to have a focus there. Um, and we look to replicate the success with the tactics that we have in that market in their neighboring countries as well. But Korea is looking great. Of course, we're weathering the storm with supply chain issues, our ability to get containers. Uh, everybody's feeling that pain, and, and we're the to. That's the truth. It'll be nice as these uh, supply chain issues get further behind us and we can put more great U.S. pork in mouths around the world. That's Courtney Nupp. She's the Vice President of International Market Development at the National Pork Board. Courtney, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. And folks, stick with us. Troy Breedenkamp of the Renewable Fuels Association will join us when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. It's been our legacy year after year, and we're proud of our heritage. At FS, our focus has been on improving growers' profitability by developing leading products and services to advance operations. Year after year, we've been committed to pointing the way forward. So visit fssystem.com and let's get you headed towards your next success. FS, bringing you what's next. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. 
Farmer's Log, soil date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables. It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me. You don't want to find out the hard way. Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safeexcavator.com for more info. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference, bite by bite. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. We talk a lot on this program about biofuels, the renewable fuel standard, and really all the things that go into keeping our vehicles moving. And the renewable fuel standard, EPA, all of this is in the news again. Folks, since 2007, when Congress passed the Energy Independence and Security Act, EPA is required to report to Congress on the environmental and resource conservation impacts of the RFS. These reports are, are supposed to be made on a triennial basis. We had one in 2011, one in 2018, and another one Coming up this year, biofuels and the environment, the third triennial report to Congress coming out in 2022, and EPA needs experts to peer review this document. There's currently a battle going on about the selection of these experts. Joining us to talk about this issue today is Troy Breedenkamp. He's the senior vice uh, president of government and public affairs at the Renewable Fuel Association. Troy, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. I want to start at the beginning, this triennial report that is supposed to be presented to Congress from the EPA. Troy, what, what all is in it and how much, uh, I guess, impact does it have when it gets uh, relayed to Congress? Well, as you said, Mike, it is a report that is required by law. Um, when you read the Renewable Fuel Standard as part of the Clean Air Act, it, it requires there to be a regular report back to Congress. Uh, in, in this case, it's supposed to happen every three years, but it doesn't necessarily happen every three years. Uh, so we call it the triennial or triennial report. Um, and, and it does give it gives Congress feedback in terms of how well the program is working. Um, certainly from an environmental perspective, we feel very strongly about the benefits of the renewable fuel standard. Uh, we have uh, uh, several uh, studies that would indicate over a billion metric tons of carbon dioxide has been removed from the environment because of uh, the use of biofuels as a result of the renewable fuel standard. Um, we see a reduction in, in 
emissions of 40 to 50 percent for corn-based ethanol versus conventional fuel. So we certainly want to make sure that in any report going to Congress from the EPA that those positive environmental benefits are being presented in a fair and equitable way uh, to members of, of Congress. And so what the EPA does is they put a list of candidates together. They have put a, a list together of uh, 20 or so, uh, of which nine will be picked to serve on this review process of this report, and they'll give their blessing or they'll give their criticisms of whatever the EPA is going to be presenting to the Congress, and, and then that could influence, obviously, what that final report looks like. So it's a very important process, um, and it's one where you're actually getting down to picking jurors, if you will, um, and that's where we've gotten involved uh, because we saw many names on this list that were very problematic from our perspective. Well, and that's just the thing. There's 20 different names. Several of them have been vociferous critics of the RFS and biofuels more broadly. One of the names that jumped out at me is Tyler J. Lark, professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's the author of a paper that has been certainly widely criticized, and I'm guessing that name was one of those that jumped out at you as well. It certainly did. We we saw a, a handful, and, and, and by that I mean five or six of, of the 20 potential candidates that really, in our view, show a deep-seated bias against, in particular, corn-based ethanol. Uh, Tyler Lark would certainly top that list, but you also have Jason Hill at the University of Minnesota. You have Aaron Smith with the University of California, Davis, Stephen Berry with Yale University. Uh, there's just some folks out there that have a long history of, of, of documented bias toward corn-based ethanol. Uh, you, you mentioned Lark by name, and, and that's the report that people think of in terms of what's uh, been in the news here lately. Uh, Mr. Lark and, and uh, some of his compatriots uh, put together a report I think they published in, in January or February of, of this year, and it was full of nothing but uh, uh, disinformation and, and basically things that we have huge problems with in terms of uh, their data for indirect land use and food versus fuel. And, and many of these arguments that we have put to bed long ago uh, by good science was, was brought back up in, in this latest report. And we don't feel like someone like that would, would be able to give a, an honest review of a report that the EPA is required to send to Congress. That's why we are objecting to many of the names on that list right now. And Troy, I just want to add a little more color here. It's not just the RFA that's objecting to Tyler Lark. The complaints about that study have been, well, really widespread. I know the Department of Energy, Argonne National Laboratory, Purdue, and the University of Illinois issued a report saying that this, Tyler Lark's paper, was, quote, more problematic than we initially evaluated to be the case. So it sounds like there's a lot of pushback, and yet his name is still on there. What are the next steps in this process, Troy? Well, you're absolutely correct about uh, the pushback. Um, we had a direct rebuttal. It was over 60 pages long of direct rebuttal comments to that LARC study from the Department of Energy, Argonne National Labs, Purdue University, the University of Illinois. So there is definitely some sound science being presented in, in terms of a rebuttal to that. Where we're at right now is the comment period has closed in terms of that candidate list. So at this point, we anticipate the EPA to pick from that pool of 29 uh, reviewers uh, here in the next month or so. And then that process will then begin um, the, um, the formal report writing and then the report reviewing by that group, and we'll be on top of it. We, we have to be on top of it to make sure that, that whatever's being uh, reported to Congress is accurate and fair, and, and that's going to be our goal throughout this process, regardless of who those nine are. We just hope that a handful and the ones that we have pointed out are not part of that pool of, of nine reviewers uh, for this triennial re review going to Congress. And I'm glad you mentioned that other than the five or six names that, that you folks at RFA have highlighted, were the rest of the researchers pretty fair, pretty honest, good, uh, good scientific researchers of this topic? You know, 
we feel they were. There was three or four that that we had a good relationship with that that we know have 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 written fair um, reporting and and fair research when it comes to biofuels. Uh, so those are folks that we would clearly uh, support being part of this. There was also a, a group, Mike, that that we weren't as familiar with, and and so knowing that there isn't negative uh, reports or negative research out there, we feel like, like that's a pretty comfortable place for us to be in terms of the rest of the pool. So again, we, we put forward the, the five or so names that, that we thought were just egregious and could not do a, a good job of, of, uh, of fairly reviewing what the EPA is going to put together for a report simply based on their historical bias toward biofuels and in particular corn-based ethanol. So Troy, I said this report was going to be coming out today, but you mentioned this is really just the first step in getting this thing to Congress. Does 2022 seem likely or do you think this will be another multi-year process once these names are announced? Oh no, I think we should definitely see a report to Congress yet this year. Um, as I stated, I, I would, uh, with the closing of the comment period on the candidates, we would anticipate EPA putting together that review panel uh, within the next month or so, and then the actual report being reviewed by them will take several months, but there's no reason why we shouldn't anticipate something to Congress by the end of the year would, would be, a, I think, a pretty reasonable time frame. All right. As you prepare for the battle here in in securing the RFS's future, is land use going to be one of the major issues that are addressed in this report? It probably will, just simply from the LARC study bringing it to the attention of the EPA and to others. Um, you know, what is so frustrating about that issue is, is that when you look at what the RFS requires and, and the re and the RFS already requires there to be only a finite amount of acreage used to meet that biofuel demand from the RFS. So, so there's already kind of a baked-in uh, limitation in, in terms of where that land use can come from. Then you look at the actual data, and the actual data would indicate, you know, where we actually have less corn acres today than when the RFS originally passed in 2005 and in 2007. So we are making, or the farmer is uh, producing uh, more corn on less acres than they ever have. That's just through good technology. And we want credit for that. And so that's something that we will certainly bring to the forefront as this review process uh, goes through uh, its paces. Fantastic. Let's get farmers for the credit for the hard work they're doing on the ground. Folks, we've been talking to Troy Breedenkamp, Senior Vice President, Government and Public Affairs at RFA. Troy, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stick with us. Bill Biederman of agmarket.net when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. water is open. It's time to go boating and fishing and leave stress in our wake. Feel the wind as we ride and a fish on the line. Reel in our first catch and feel the sun at our backs. It's get out on the water season. It's time to get on board. Find out where to get on board near you. Visit Take Me Fishing and Discover Boating to learn more. And please recreate responsibly. Get on board. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, we see the soybean complex moving a bit higher on the back of a soybean sale and ounces sporting on the export wire. 132,000 metric tons sold to China, split evenly between old and new crop here today. Quarter wheat markets fading a bit here as we work through our morning trade with spring wheat trying to hang on to a couple green numbers, but overall seeing uh, some fading here. 
After overnight, we saw strength throughout the grains, albeit light strength, after a big selling day yesterday. National Corded Soybean Planting came in near expectations yesterday, 86% and 66% respectively, with spring wheat exceeding trade estimates at 73% complete. Now, in absolute terms and using USDA's March planted acreage numbers, that leaves around 12.5 million acres of corn to plant, almost 31 million acres of soybeans, which isn't unusual at this point, and 3 million acres of spring wheat. Final plant dates for insurance purposes likely to mean very little at these prices. Producers have incentive to plant late for any crop. Minnesota and the Dakotas got plastered by more heavy rains and dangerous storms over the holiday weekend, but we could see a carving out of a decent little planting window here this week before chances return this upcoming weekend in the 6-10 to 10 day time frame. And considering we saw some pretty big jumps in the northern plains in the northwestern belt and planting progress this week, another dry window could allow for more to get done, although we are anticipating prevent plant acres in the region. Taking a look at a few numbers in the trade right now. Cord for July down five and a half, seven forty-eight. July beans up thirteen, sixteen ninety-six and a quarter. July Chicago wheat down seven to three quarters, ten seventy-nine to three quarters. July KC wheat down five, eleven sixty and a half. July spring wheat up one and a quarter, twelve forty-eight and three quarters. Moderate strength in cattle and hog trade. Crude oil currently is trading up a dollar ninety-five, one sixteen sixty-two. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in today. Next up, we're going to be speaking to Bill Biederman, founder of agmarket.net, because we have seen these markets moving. Folks, if you watched the soybean market yesterday and then you took a look at it today, your neck might snap from the difference in pricing. Bill, thanks for joining us today. Not a problem, Mike. Pleasure to be on. Let's start with yesterday's price action. Bill, we had a little bit of strength coming into the trade Monday when things reopened, and then it just fell apart yesterday. What happened? Was there an impetus? Well, Mike, a couple things. Number one, the funds are getting out, and seasonally we do have a sell-off right about when you can drive around and go, dang it, I didn't think that corn would come out of the ground. So that's we call it, oh, my gosh, they got a planted sell-off happens most years and uh and then there's a there's a usually a flat point and then maybe another sell-off when the people around chicago suburbs are out playing golf and they start calling their buddies and texting them pictures of the corn that's actually growing so this is pretty typical uh we can we can also uh, attach some of this sell-off to Russia playing games saying, hey, we would love to do humanitarian aid and ship some food, which we all know that that's not their real agenda. They need money real real bad, and they need those mines cleared out of the Black Sea, uh, which I don't think either one of those things are going to happen. And they want their sanctions lifted. I don't think that's going to happen at all. So I think the odds of seeing shipments coming out of there are pretty remote, even though there's an international community behind it. Mike, I just don't see the politics working out that way uh, unless they have absolutely no contingencies. Another thing that's happening is we've had off, you know, the, the India, we're going to export uh, wheat. No, we're not going to. We're going we're gonna to ban it. No, we're going to export it. No, we're going to ban it. That's the order in which we've left it at so far. 
And same with Indonesia on oil uh, exports, palm oil exports. Uh, you know, they banned those, and now they're saying, well, shoot, our, our storage is so full. We don't have room for the new crop, even though the new crop is small. So we got to export some. And then on top of all that, we've got a macro factor here of a stock market that's reeling and uh, uh, falling down, and that's taken a lot of equity. 30% of people are losing their, their pension money right now and freaking out. So they're calling their broker saying, Mike, what do I do? You know, And you say, oh, just hold because the stock market always goes up. And you say, yeah, but what do I have on that's of risk? And you tell me that, well, we've got some money in these ETFs that are commodities for inflation. And you just say, get me out of anything risky. And, and those are the things that are pressuring it right now. That makes sense. It, that combination of factors that you touched on, Bill, I want to dive into a little bit deeper. That stock market sell-off we're seeing on the equity side, combined with the fund sell-off we're seeing on the commodity side, this big rotation. Bill, where are those commodity folks that are leaving their positions in commodities? Where are they taking that money? Or is it just going to cash? I Honestly, Mike, I think some of it's going to the margin calls on their stock accounts. So, you know, you take a 30% hit on your equity account, and, uh, you know, that, that's pretty major. So you either got to come up with money to fund it, or you got to lighten up on that. And the last thing people want to do is lighten up on their equities. So we're seeing, I believe, some money move back over towards those accounts. And then the other people who have equity, they're trying to preserve it. So I believe they're moving money into the bonds. And uh, even though bonds don't give a very good return, uh, typically over history, they're safer. And we're actually seeing the bond market go up a little bit, which suggests we are seeing money moving into it. Interesting. As you put yourself in the shoes of those fund managers looking out at this incredibly unsettled world we live in in 2022 with inflation and high prices and war and everything else, Bill, do you think they're going to continue to keep biting at this commodity market as a hedge against inflation? Yes. In fact, uh, we're, we were just talking about it as a company this morning. I mean, you know, we hate for prices to go down, but it creates a great opportunity, Mike. And, and so typically what we're hoping to see here is that we'll wash out some of these speculators that have been so heavily into the market. And we are seeing that. I mean, the fund position is much reduced to what it was. And uh, if we can wash a few more people, those out, get some trade below $7, uh, that should blow out all the people who have bought it at, at a higher price. And, and then I think you're going to see stability. Now, here's, here's the deal. Going into the summer, there's three major assumptions that the government has made in their supply demand. One is we're going to get all 89.5 million acres planted. The second is we're going to have a record yield. And the third is that we're going to see about a 320 million bushel decline in demand. Now, honestly, I don't see any of those three assumptions having a high probability of occurring at, at this point, you know, in time. But we're not going to know about the acres till June. We're not going to know about the yield potential until probably July, August. And the demand is going to be very, very strongly based on what we see internationally with supplies, uh, logistics, and politics. And I'm also curious, Bill, about ethanol demand. Could we see miles driven drop off this summer and have that impact ethanol? We could, but I think it's going to get offset by a higher percent of ethanol blend. Uh, there's a good margin right now, uh, so I believe you're going to see uh, good ethanol use. I know the USDA raised their ethanol number to 5375. Uh, from, uh, well, that matches uh, previous year. I, I believe that's going to happen. Uh, but, Mike, if I go back to that conversation we were just having, it, let's just say I take a million acres off, okay? And let's just say I, I take the yield down to like a 168, and I leave the demand uh, just as, well, right about where USDA has it, my carryover would drop to 398, 398 million bushel. And we need like, 1,200 million bushels just to run the pipeline. So you're asking if money's going to come back into commodities? The smart money is going to buy this break. Until we know and have eliminated the summer risk of what kind of yield do we get, if we're having a record yield, yeah, we're going to go a lot lower. But if we're not having a record yield, there's another bump. 
And this sets up that incredibly, incredibly difficult decision that end users need to be making right now. Bill, we're eyeing that $7 mark in Dees Corn. We're down from, you know, $7.50 or so. If it gets under 7 is that a point that end users, dairy producers, feedlots need to be locking in some supply on the off chance that we don't get the corn in or the yield just isn't there? Well, I I think, Mike, it's a little lower than that. I mean, the $7 level is what trips the chart to negative. So now we can get that margin call selling that we all hope to see as buyers because we know that will pressure the market. And if we can drop down towards that 675 to 650 area, that's not that big of a sell-off in the big picture, but that is a great buying opportunity for end users uh, to, to protect themselves at least into August, September, where they know there's going to be a yield established. And if they start seeing signs that the yield won't make a record, they're going to be buying more as we go. There's no doubt about it. Between now and so then the question is, well, you know, how should a farmer sell? Because that's what we do, right? I mean, we, we got to sell to, to establish a profit per acre. Uh, your, your big risk period is if you hold too long, those cards too long, uh, and we get past July, August without a weather problem. I mean, let's face it, the drought has, for the biggest part, disappeared. I, I don't want to offend people out in the in the far west, but, you know, from Omaha east uh, and north, there's not much of a drought anymore. Uh, so if we get into August and there's nothing threatening the crop, uh, we will probably top, and it won't be for one year. Uh, history tells us, when we get to prices like this, now they always say high prices cure high prices. You better be looking at being sold at least one or two or three years out ahead, depending on your management styles. That uh, You worry about costs per acre, I'd worry about costs later. I mean, we saw a 30% drop in nitrogen this last week. So, you know, I think selling is a, is, is a great idea. We're selling in a way to where the upside is still open if we're wrong, but we're locking in $400 an acre profit by purchasing high-priced puts, writing big checks. We don't care. The market goes up. Instead of $400, we're going to make $1,000. If it goes down, worst case scenario is we're making $400 on top of whatever else we get from insurance or whatever. Yeah, 400 bucks an acre, that is a big margin, even with input prices where they are. Bill, before we let you go, soybean demand in China, saw them step back in in the export sales report today. Do you think they're going to be big buyers all summer? Uh, they're going to be off and on, but once they start to chew up that South American crop, they don't have a choice. They're going to have to come here. We, we thought that they were going to be backing off on some demand. It doesn't appear that there's any chance of that, especially with COVID lifting and then getting back out into the restaurants and chewing up that fried rice. All right. So we should see more of those purchases coming in the subsequent weeks for old crop, you think? I believe so. But right now, the competitiveness of the U.S. market is not the way place to go. So it's still more beneficial to go to South America. On corn, we're pretty, pretty dead even. Gotcha. But in soybeans, it's that dollar value that makes us uncompetitive. Is that the difference? Uh, it's the dollar, it's actually the FOB values. So, you know, SOB, FOB and SIF is the markets we follow. Um, the dollar I do think is probably topped. So, um, you know, historically speaking, we don't get much higher than where we've been. Uh, the international community will come in to kind of equilibrium uh, this market out and get, get some money to go that way. All right. Well, thank you to Bill Biederman of agmarket.net. Always appreciate the conversation. And we'll be talking to Bill this weekend on This Week in Agribusiness. Bill, thanks for joining us today. You bet. And folks, stick around. We've got some more news updates coming at the fourth segment of this show. So stay with us. We'll have more AOA when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. 
The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. The archaeological records suggest that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. Hi, I'm Secretary Tom Vilsack. In my 40 plus years of experience in the ag industry, I have seen firsthand the tremendous value and influence of the census of agriculture. A complete count of our farms, ranches, and the people who operate them that tells the story of U.S. agriculture. It highlights trends, needs, and the great impact agriculture has on every American as well as folks around the world. Ag census data also informs federal, state, and local decisions that will affect you and your operations for years to come. If you're an ag producer, no matter the size of your operation, urban or rural, and you did not receive the 2017 Census of Agriculture and did not receive other USDA surveys, you still have time to sign up to receive the 2022 Ag Census this fall. Every voice matters. To sign up or learn more, visit nas.usda.gov backslash agcensus. Thank you. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. When it comes to protecting your investment in fuel and diesel-powered equipment, Diesel X Gold from FS clearly beats other diesel fuels. New detergents disperse contaminants to prevent sludge that plugs filters and causes unexpected downtime. And now, better moisture handling chemistry helps ensure your fuel stays dry, reducing microbial growth and fuel line freeze-ups. So when you're deciding what fuel to use, choose Diesel X Gold, absolutely the best fuel to power and protect your diesel equipment. Contact your local FS Energy Specialist today or visit GoFurtherWithFS.com. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Well, folks, thanks for tuning in today. Before we let you go, there are a couple of headlines of stories we've been tracking here on the program that I wanted to give you an update on. Issue number one, speed limiters in trucks. The Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration about a month ago announced that they are going to pursue rulemaking for requiring speed limiters be installed in commercial vehicles weighing more than 26,000 pounds. Now, this approach is controversial. There are two sides to this issue. The American Trucking Association supports this requirement. They say this would lead to a, quote, constructive data-driven approach to tracking data on the highways. However, OIDA, the owner-operator Independent Drivers Association, opposes the requirement, and we've spoken with OIDA here on the program before. They note that speed limiters cause variance in speed if the trucks are limited to 65 miles an hour. But for example, in South Dakota, you're doing 80 legally down the highway. Does that create difficulties when you are approaching a truck from the rear? That variance in speed is substantial. 20 miles, 15 miles an hour, that makes a big difference. So OIDA opposes the mandate. Folks, this rule, the the comment period was scheduled to end this Friday. However, there has been a huge outpouring of comments. So far, 11,000 responses to this issue have been recorded at FMCSA. And so they have announced they will extend the comment period. So now if you are a trucker, if you rely on a trucker, if you live with the trucker, if you work with the trucker, if you've got an opinion on this issue, you now have until July 18th to get those requests and comments submitted to the FMCSA. That is underway, folks. Get that done. We will post a link to the comment page on our Twitter, so you can follow us there at AOA underscore talk show on Twitter, and we'll share this. Do be sure you get out there. If, you're, if your livelihood or relies on the trucking industry, make sure your voice is heard, folks. One way or another, whether you support or oppose this mandate, it sounds like the rule is coming. So get your voices in there. Another topic that we have been discussing quite a bit is consumer optimism. We heard it from Bill Biederman there. These high prices are changing the way consumers are doing business, and we're getting more evidence of that each day. The Conference Board, this is the group that tracks consumer confidence across the country, they announced that their May consumer confidence level was the lowest since February and folks, we've got to go all the way back to December of 2020 to find consumers feeling the lack of confidence they're feeling right here. We got to go two years back into the past. And their reasons for the lack of confidence aren't terribly surprising. I've got a feeling it's the reason a lot of us maybe are finding ourselves less confident in the state of the economy. They note that persistently high inflation, particularly in categories like food and energy, is weighing on household sentiment and straining budgets. Interesting note as we think about when these markets could be topping. We've talked to Professor Jason Miller of the Eli Broad School of Business at Michigan State University several times on this show, and he has emphasized the importance in tracking how Americans are using their credit cards. The idea being during the pandemic, a lot of American households had extra cash on hand thanks to various government programs, different loans and grants, all of the spending that happened as COVID got started. And so he is watching for when those Americans have exhausted their cash pile. And we can tell when that cash pile is exhausted because they are switching over to credit cards. And that switch really got started in April, and that has continued through the month of May. Americans are getting leveraged once again. We do have another story. This one is developing today. It is expected to be announced later on today, this afternoon, that the Biden administration is going to announce $2.1 billion in new funding. This is coming on top of the funding that was announced earlier to promote uh, more hiring and more training in processing plants, but it's basically the same thing. This $2.1 billion is going to fund initiatives to expand small and mid-sized processing plants. It's going to be used to fund storage facilities and to assist farmers who are looking to shift into organic production. Certainly, this has been, uh, been underscored by grocery prices that have been climbing over this past year. There is a large cry from consumers broadly across this country and, well, around the world to address the food issue and to have farmers get more food in the ground. And this is the way the Biden administration is responding it. Secretary Tom Vilsack said in a quote, a transformed food system is part of how we as a country become more resilient. 
It's expected that more details for these programs will be announced here over the coming days. I have been in talks with uh, Secretary Vilsack's office to get him on the program and run through the details. But what we know so far is that $600 million in assistance will be available for independently owned supply chain infrastructure. So this is where they're coming in, trying to bolster cold storage facilities, refrigerated trucks, the things you need in order to allow the on-time delivery of perishable goods. That's $600 million. Then there's $400 million that will be used to create regional food business centers. Now, these are going to be designed to support small and mid-sized farms and food processors. Don't have much more detail than that. Hopefully, the secretary will give us some when we talk later on uh, in the future. And then there's another $300 million to assist farms transitioning to organic production. Of course, a lot of our listeners are well aware if you're making the transition from conventional agriculture to organic, there's a transition period where you you let the soils rest. I'm not entirely sure of the, the rationale, but that transition period, the problem that, that a lot of growers face is they don't have the yield bump that they got with conventional crops, but they don't yet have the marketing advantage of selling the premium priced products in the organic market. So this 300 million would help those growers bridge that gap. And then there was another $155 million. This is an increase in existing funding to promote healthy food options in food deserts. We've heard this phrase a lot since the Obama administration. It goes back to the idea that there are communities in this country that just don't have access to fresh food. They don't have a grocery store. They don't have a bodega. They don't have a deli, someplace that sells fresh food. This, this funding should come in and help those areas. So we will continue to watch this $1.2 billion program. This funding is coming from the $1.9 trillion COVID package Congress passed last year. We'll keep you up to date on that information as more becomes available. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We are going to be talking with Glenn Tonser of K-State about meat demand in the month of May. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you then. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. It's been said that when someone you love has Parkinson's, you have Parkinson's. The Parkinson's Foundation knows that the disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed. It affects everyone who supports and helps care for them. If you or someone you know is living with Parkinson's, a neurological disease that affects movement, we understand that it can be difficult to know where to find help. If you have questions, the Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight. We can help you understand the disease. Help you find expert care and local support give you tips for living a better life, and share the latest research. Find your answers and join us in the fight against Parkinson's. To learn more, please go to parkinson.org. Or call 1-800-473-4636. That's 1-800-473-4636. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better Better lives together.